Thanks, Kay. Thanks to our team as they've led us through our time together this morning. It's been wonderful to sing those beautiful uh, songs of reflection on, uh, on our wonderful and glorious God, one who we desperately do need in our lives, hey? Please keep your Bibles open there to uh, Deuteronomy 14, and uh, let's just ask God to, uh, to be our teacher this morning. Father, we thank you again, uh, Lord, for the privilege it is to be able to meet together here in this place and to come around your word now. Lord, we do so, uh, as Grant prayed, Lord, expectantly, uh, expecting you indeed to, uh, to teach us, even though it might be a passage which... Uh, might be uh, initially on the uh, on the surface of it appear uh, of little perhaps little relevance to us today. We know there is much that you can teach us, and so we just ask that uh, you would do that. And I pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart might be acceptable to you in your sight. For we ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, uh, for those of you who uh, are fairly new to the church, we are currently in a series in this uh, book of Deuteronomy, the fifth uh, book of the uh, the Bible. In the Old Testament, and uh, the uh, title of the or the theme of the, the series is this: Choose Life, because that is in fact very much the uh, the words of Moses, um, you know, to the people of Israel as he gives these series of sermons to them, camped on the the plains of Moab before they enter into uh, into the Promised Land that God had promised to Abraham hundreds of years before. And uh, here they stand, and, and Moses wants them to go into the land and, and really experience what real life is all about with God. And uh, so that's hence why we've, uh, we've entitled this series Choose Life. And uh, this morning we continue in this uh, sort of mini part of this series, if you like, through chapter 13 and 14 of Deuteronomy, uh, entitled Growing in Holiness. I don't know about you, but there are certain passages which, uh, which we sometimes come across in the Bible that when we, when we do come across them, we're tempted to sort of just skip right over them. Because, you know, they're either too difficult to understand or we sort of feel as though, well, we really don't sort of find, you know, any kind of relevance, you know, for that, you know, for me in my life today. You know, living in the 21st century, it just really doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to us today. You know, perhaps passages like, you know, the genealogies and the things like that, you know, those really, really long names and all of these weird and wonderful people that we sort of read about. You think, well, really don't know too much, you know, about those. You know, we can just skip over those and not really worry about it. Perhaps so there are some sections of the prophets, some of those really hard, you know, sort of sections which we uh, we struggle with, or uh, perhaps there are, you know, I mean, you know, the laws, particularly the whole book of Leviticus. I mean, generally people tend to shy away from that because there's all these laws there which we think, oh boy, that's just too hard, and so we just, you know, forget about it altogether. When we come to a passage such as we find here in our uh, in our Bibles this morning in Deuteronomy 14. That speaks about, you know, cutting ourselves and shaving our heads and eating, you know, vultures and, uh, and things like that. Then again, we kind of ask ourselves, you know, really, what, what has this got to say to me today? You know, really, Duncan, you're really preaching on this this morning? What on earth are you going to get? You know, are you going to be able to, you know, sort of tell me today that, uh, that I can take away and think, you know what? This is, you know, God's really actually speaking to my heart this morning. Well, I'm pretty sure today that, uh, that if you are listening carefully, that you'll find that uh, God has very, very much to say to us in, through this, this passage. We're going to find that there's a lot of instruction for us in terms of our own you know, lives of discipleship, of living lives you know, that are indeed dedicated to Christ and uh, living to, to bring him glory. 
Last week we focused on the whole matter of idolatry and the fact that we as, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, you know, we really are not to worship anything or anyone other than God, God himself. We're to worship him alone. And today our thoughts shift from this, this whole aspect of this rejection of false gods to in fact a rejection of false practices or unholy practices. And this morning I've given you some notes in your newsletter. You can follow along this morning. We're going to be uh, dealing with this under two headings this morning. First of all, our position, and then we're going to uh, look at, at our purpose, these, these practices. So let's begin this morning with our position, and we find that in verses 1a, verse 2, and verse 21 of our passage. Because what we need to understand is before we start to think about the uniqueness of our behaviour as believers in Christ, we need to understand the uniqueness of our position in Jesus Christ. How, uh, how we have been uh, given this wonderful position uh, before God, this wonderful relationship with him through Jesus. Because it forms the, ba- the, the basis, if you like, or the foundation of, of how we're meant to live. We need to grasp this first before we understand then you know, how that's to be lived out in our lives. Look at verse 1a and verse 2 of our passage this morning. It says that you are the sons of the Lord your God. You are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. We see that emphasized again right at the, at the end of the passage in verse 21 where, where Moses says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. This kind of sandwich, if you like. So this whole passage is sandwiched between this aspect of, of the fact that we are a people who are holy. Holy to God, called by him. We are called to be different from those people around about us. I mean, this is what holiness actually means. It means to be set apart for specifically for special purposes, and that is God's purposes. God's purpose in our, for us to be able to live lives which give glory and bring glory to him which point others to the wonderful reality and truth of the fact that there is a a creator God who loves them and who has a great purpose for their life and for the whole world. And for all those whom God has called and chosen, who have admitted their need to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, you know, they they, they understand that uh, in order to have this relationship with God, their sin needs to be dealt with. This rebellion and this rejection of God needs to be dealt with. And we can't do it in and of ourselves. It needs to be, we need to come to Christ and recognize it is only his sacrifice on the cross through his death and resurrection that we through faith can actually have, be, be reconciled to God. Admitting our need for the forgiveness of our sin, admitting that we are indeed completely alienated from God in every way possible. But that through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ that that relationship can be mended and restored to all to what God intended it to be. When we come to that point of, of, of repentance and faith in Christ, as we admit that, we are reconciled then to God through Jesus Christ. We are made children then of God, adopted into his family, the Bible says. We become citizens and heirs of the kingdom of God. And so if we are these children, if we are the children of God, if we are indeed citizens and heirs of this kingdom of God, then God calls us to live like that in our lives today. See, we need to understand that as followers of Christ, we first of all belong to God. You are His. 
He has redeemed you through Jesus Christ. He has bought you with a price. The Apostle Paul writes. And that price is the precious blood of his son, the Lord Jesus. Now God didn't have to do that. But through his grace and mercy and compassion, he chose to bless us in that way. His grace has been poured out, been poured out into our lives. That we have become his treasured possession, God speaks of here. A people for his treasured possession. You know, we know for many of us how special those people are who are close to us. How valued that they are in our lives, how, how treasured they are. And we've all got those people in our lives, haven't we? But that doesn't even compare to how much God treasures his own children. How much God loves us. How much we mean to him and the purposes that he has for us. So if we've been given this unique and glorious purpose then as, as, as children of God to, to, to live for him and to point, people, to point others to this love that God has for us. And God says that we are to do that through living our lives in, in a certain way. That our lives need to be distinct or different from those around us. I mean, that's what this whole passage effectively is all about this morning. This whole passage is about our distinctiveness as the people of God. Now, to be distinct means to stand out, doesn't it? It means to, you know, to, to, to literally be completely different from everything else and everyone else. Our lives are to bear the marks of God's special ownership on us as believers. So we need to, we need to grasp this first, this whole aspect of our distinctiveness, of the fact that we've been called by God, special to Him, treasured by Him. And when we start to grasp that even more, then we start to recognize the, the, the purpose that God has for us in our lives and how we are meant to live, you know, for Him. The Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3, you know, says this beautiful prayer, you know, calling on the people to, to, that they might know this love that God has for them in a deeper and richer way. Why does Paul ask for that? Like he could, there was lots of situations facing the, 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 the Christians in Ephesus in their day. All kinds of persecution, all kinds of, of idolatry and all sorts of stuff that are happening around them. Paul could have prayed for numerous things for those people living in Ephesus in that, in his day. But the thing that he called for most importantly was for the people to know, to have a deeper and richer understanding of God's love for them. Because he knew as we, as the people grasped that more, as they, as they, as they that sort of you know penetrated deep down into their souls and their spirits, they would see how valuable they are to God and that would give them the motivation then to want to live lives for God. And it's the same with us today. We need to recognise our position first and foremost. But then as the people of God, we are called to live out a purposeful life for him. We see that in verses 1b and verse 3 through to 21. See, because the people were the children of God, they were given these certain commands relating to their daily lives. 
And the first of these we see in our passage this morning was that they were not to cut themselves, nor were they to shave their heads, all right, to, uh, to honour the dead. I mean, basically, in, in Canaanite culture, in, in, in this particular culture at this time, it was normal for people who had a relative or a friend who died to express their grief through cutting themselves and through lacerating themselves and through shaving their heads. And they did that because it was a way then of kind of honouring the dead, but also of trying to get the attention of the gods to seek the favour of their gods on this person who had died. This whole aspect of, of lacerating and cutting themselves to, in order to get the God's attention, we see in, in 1 Kings 18 and 28, there was this uh, incredible uh, incident that took place with uh, the prophet Elijah, um, who uh, went up onto Mount Carmel and he had this competition, if you like, with the prophets of Baal. And they both made, they both made an altar each, and, and Elijah said, you make an altar and uh, you call on your God to consume your offering on your altar, and, uh, and, and I'll do the same with mine, and we'll see whose God's, you know, whose God is greater. And so the prophets of Baal, you know, they made their altar, they put their sacrifice on it, and then they danced around and they chanted and they cut themselves. It says they cried aloud. They cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. It was a way of them sort of trying to get their God's attention, but nothing was happening to the sacrifice. And Elijah says, you might need to shout a bit louder. Maybe your gods can't hear you or he's gone to sleep or maybe your gods are in the toilet or something like that. It's true. You can read it later. And of course, there was nothing that happened. And then after a great big long time, Elijah just, you know, prepares his altar. He pours heaps and heaps of water over it, over the sacrifice. And then he just gets down and he prays this really, really simple prayer. He said, God, send fire to, to, to consume this sacrifice. And fire came down for heaven and the whole lot was just consumed in this huge big fireball. Sacrifice, altar, water, the whole works. It's amazing, amazing event of, of, of God's faithfulness to his prophet there. But you can see that, you know, here are these people, they just, this was how they thought that they could get God's attention, particularly on behalf of the dead. In writing the, the, the first letter to, Thess- to the Thessalonian church in chapter 4 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul says this, for believers, and this is the contrast, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, in other words, those who are dead. So we don't want you to be uninformed so that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. See, for the people like, you know, the prophets of Baal who, you know, really didn't know whether or not they could actually get their God's attention and that sort of stuff, they went through all of these ritual sacrifice, you know, all of these rituals and stuff like that, hoping to gain their God's attention. Hoping that they could find, you know, maybe secure the, the, the path for their, for their uh, dead loved one into the afterlife and that sort of thing. But they had no idea whether or not it was successful or not. And yet Paul says for the believer, we have got hope in Jesus Christ. We have got a tremendous hope in Jesus Christ. You know, as, as someone who's conducted many, many funerals in my time as a pastor, can I say that, that to conduct a funeral for, uh, for a person who, uh, as a believer, is very much easier to conduct than for a person who we're really unsure as to where that person really stood with the Lord. You know, for the funeral of an unbeliever, it's, it's surely got to be one of the most saddest times 
for people who are experiencing those sorts of things to know that for that person there is indeed no hope, that there is nothing left. To know that this person has likely gone to an eternity of suffering and torment. To know that, along with that, that there is no true comfort that can be given for those who are still alive, that their loss is permanent. I mean, the grief and sadness that they feel cannot be tempered with the assurance of knowing that their loved one is with God and that one day they will see them again. They can't have that hope. Yet for the believer who's died, there is great assurance and great hope, a level of joy that they are now at home with their Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and experiencing all the fullness of the blessings of their salvation in Christ. Sure, for those who are left behind, we grieve. We are sad because we are going to miss them and, it's, and it would be wrong for us not to grieve. Yet our tears and our grief are generally more so for ourselves because we will indeed miss those people. But as Christians, we do not weep and wail as though death were the end for the believer, do we? And we mustn't do. Because if we do, then that itself is a denial of the gospel. It is a denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And folks, can I say this morning that how we respond to death can be an incredible witness for God. How we face death ourselves and how we cope with the death of of those loved ones around us can be an incredible witness for God in our lives. Well, before we leave this matter of of cutting cutting and lacerating our bodies, I want to address just a couple of other aspects too, because I think they sort of come to uh, come to some people's minds. Because when it when it comes to it, the body that we've been given by God really needs to be treated with with respect and honour. It was given to us by God, and we are told in the Scriptures to glorify God in our bodies. In fact, our bodies, we are told, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now, I think this has got a, a number of, of applications for us as believers today. And one of the things which, uh, which really saddens me is that there are, there are people, in, you know, sadly in our communities today, and probably, probably more so younger people than anyone, who seek to cut themselves out of things like depression, out of guilt, out of anger or rage, or out of emptiness, or even out of self-loathing and hatred. It's a means by which they're able to get some kind of release or comfort to themselves. And it is so sad because it is so destructive. It is so destructive to them and to their lives and for the lives of the people who are trying to support them and care for them and love them. And sadly, we see that in fact all sin is destructive, isn't it? All sin is destructive. For the Christian, we need to recognise that our bodies are indeed sacred to the Lord 
And that these kind of behaviours, although we are tempted to maybe want to do these sort of things, they're not proper for the, for, the, for the people of God. That God loves you. That God loves you with an everlasting love, a deep love that no one, you know, that no one can, can match in this world today. And I think the thing that, 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 that these people need to know more than anything else is the fact that God so desperately loves them. And that that this kind of behaviour is not the answer to their problems. And as Christians, we need to draw alongside of people like this and assure them of God's love for them and to demonstrate that love for them in practical ways. That we being the hands and feet of Jesus to these people, instead of withdrawing from them or instead of writing them off or judging them or criticizing them or whatever, we had to need, we had need to understand the depth of the, of, of the, you know, the dark depths that these people are in right now. It's destructive behavior and all sin is destructive. And that's why God gives us his commands. He gives us his commands out of his grace and for our good. Folks, if, you know, this is one of the deep, deep things we need to understand when it comes to, you know, going through the Old Testament, particularly these laws and that sort of stuff, is, is that God has given, given us these laws, these commands for our good. Not to rob us of our enjoyment, not to rob us of fun and that sort of stuff, but indeed to protect us and to care for us and to make sure that our lives are our lives of fulfilment and meaning and purpose. Another aspect of this whole aspect of uh, of um, cutting and lacerating bodies is is this matter of body piercings and tattoos. This marking of the body. Now, can I say that you cannot use this verse to prohibit tattoos or piercings? Okay, that's not what this verse is saying. And so we can't use it, you know, to, to deny that. But what we need to consider is whether or not these things actually bring glory to God or whether or not they're just a part of worldliness to fit into the, to the world around about us. You see, it's not just about fulfilling the letter of the law that it's important, but it's about understanding that the law and its demands really is, is, is about our relationship with God. A living relationship. It's, a, it's about a heart matter, an internal motivation and attitude that is far more important than outward ritual. And when it comes to this sort of behaviour, we need to understand that, that, that genuine love for God and for others is to drive us. So we need to ask ourselves questions like, you know, do these things actually bring glory to God? Is it a healthy thing for me to be participating in such behaviours? You know, is it bringing glory to God and is it, is it a good thing for those people around about me? That's what we need to ask ourselves. And we see that even more when it comes to uh, this next command which, uh, which Moses talks about and that is to do with the dietary habits, the dietary laws. See, Moses says there were some things that were allowed to be eaten and others which were not. And I'm not going to go through the whole list this morning and, you know, and, and go into uh, you know, which was you know, clo- uh, clove and hoof and choo-choo, the cut and all that sort of stuff. You can read that for yourself. But what we need to understand here is that 
You know, as people have sort of tried to come to grips with this passage, some commentators have tried to understand this through, um, through, through different ways and they've put it down to Moses actually having maybe a, a, some different reasons as to why this command was given. The first is, uh, is hygienic reasons. All right, it appears that many of the animals that the Israelites were forbidden to eat were animals who were considered unclean because of the kind of diets that the animals themselves ate. You know, they ate stuff which caused disease. And so they see it as a, as a hygienic reason that God gave these commands to the people. Then there is, you know, another view is on the religious grounds. That the animals were forbidden because they were central to the worship, the worship rituals of the pagan religions of the day in, in the Canaanite culture. Particularly in there in verse 21, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. That was a clear reference to the fact that you know they would they would do this, and then the, the milk was then sprinkled over the ground or whatever in order to you know hopefully bring about a great big harvest and that sort of stuff. It was to do with this fertility religion, and so they you know they thought that God was was banning these kind of animals because of these religious grounds. But then there were some who believed that it just came down to the fact that it was arbitrary, that it was just God who determined what could and couldn't be eaten by his people simply because he's the sovereign God and because he said so, that was what it was meant to be. Now can I say that there can be some truth to all of these? But the thing that we need to remember through these prohibitions is that it had to do with the fact that God's people were meant to be a holy people. A people set apart, distinct for God, set apart for his purposes. In the New Testament, we see some similar things. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be what? Holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as his sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Here we see the Apostle Paul tying these two things together, don't we? The fact that we've been chosen by God, called by God, therefore live in a certain way. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, that is God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Again, he ties together this whole aspect of God, we are God's people, therefore we are called to be Distinct, live in a certain way that we are to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his light. As it comes to these dietary laws, these clean and unclean animals that the Israelites were meant to, uh, you know, to, 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 to take notice of were meant actually as a, as a, as a picture. They were meant to be a, a, a picture, a very visible thing to the people of Israel that they were indeed a people who had been called by God to be his special people. It was a symbolic mirroring, if you like, of their calling, of their election as God's people. As one commentator puts it, the food laws were a daily reminder to the people of their status and their role in God's purpose and of the subsequent call to holiness in the other more morally significant areas of personal and social life. The clean animals symbolised Israel, the unclean animals symbolised the pagan nations around them. 
And so every time that God's people actually sat down to their dinner tables to eat their meals, they were reminded of this, that they were indeed God's people. And what we also understand through this is that therefore there is no aspect, there is no area, if you like, of our lives where God does not have authority over. Over how we dress, over how we treat our bodies, over what we put into our bodies and what we put on our bodies. We cannot, as Christians, compartmentalise our lives and think, right, well, that's my religious part of life over there and this is all the rest. We can't do that. It's interesting just listening to uh, some of the uh, political stuff that's going on in the States at the moment. Hillary Clinton's um, uh, vice presidential nominee, can't think of what his name is now, but, uh, but just this week, like he is a, a, apparently a devout Catholic who uh, very much, you know, says that, you know, he's, he, you know this is his religion and, and he believes in this sort of stuff. But he, yet he can stand up there publicly with Hillary Clinton and say that a woman has, has a right to an abortion without any kind of, you know, with, without any kind of restrictions whatsoever. You see, he's put his Christian life or his faith life in one compartment and he's put his public life, his political life in another. And never the two shall come together. As Christians, folks, we can't do that. God has control and authority over every single aspect, over every single part of our lives. Our lives are not to be put in these little boxes and think, yes, God, you can have a part of that little bit of my life and that little bit of my life, but I'm keeping all the rest to myself. God is either Lord over your life or he's not Lord at all. Lord over all your life. Or not Lord of all. Yes, with our relationships. We see people today who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ and agree with his teaching on sexual immorality and yet who are happy to cohabit with their partners. Or they're happy to have physical relationships with their partners before marriage. Now again, God doesn't set these things down just to rob us of fun and enjoyment, but he sets them down for a purpose because it is for our good. And we see the destruction that is caused in people's lives today, in relationships today, where people sleep together and then all of a sudden, you know, it's all over and there is a huge amount of stuff, a huge amount of grief, of, of, of sadness, of, of regret and that sort of thing that happens in people's lives. People who lead promiscuous lives, they have to deal with all kinds of, of, of stuff in their lives and, and those people around about them too. God gives us these things for a purpose, for our good. When it comes to the food laws especially, we recognise that God gave his people these laws to point out to the fact that they were to be distinct from every nation around about them. And as followers of Jesus today, we are to be distinct, folks. We are to stand out. And none of us like to do that, do we? We don't like to stand out because as soon as you stand out, everyone starts pointing to you and saying, look at them. But if we truly call ourselves followers of Jesus today, we need to be people who stand out, not just for the sake of standing out, but who stand out because we want to give glory and praise to God and point people to the fact that there is only one God. There is only one Saviour, Jesus Christ. There is only one hope for us in our lives today. Amen. 
Now, thankfully, the New, the, uh, the New Testament, you know, says that we no longer have any of these dietary implications for us. Praise God for that, because I love pig. <laughs> Ham, pork, bacon, come on. That's good. That's great. You know, it's a, a reason to be thankful to God for when you get up in the morning, isn't it? Bacon and eggs for breakfast. Mark seven fourteen and 15, Jesus says that he calls the people to him and again he says, Hear me all of you and understand, there is nothing outside the person that by going into him that can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. In other words, Jesus is sort of saying, you know what? It's really about the heart, folks. You can, you can go through all these ritual practices and that sort of stuff. You can observe all these dietary requirements and all that sort of stuff, but if your heart's not right with God, doesn't mean a thing. Does not mean a thing. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 to 26, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbour. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And folks, herein lies the critical thing we need to understand this morning is that, that how we need to reflect on how our behaviour reflects on both God and our neighbour. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. That's what it, all the commands boil down to. And we as Christians need to recognise and we need to reflect on how our behaviour actually impacts on God and on how people view God because of our behaviour and particularly about our impact on our neighbours, those people around about us. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's a great motto to live your life for, folks. Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So we finish this morning, can I just say that Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, that we are not to conform to the pattern of this world. We are not to conform to the pattern of this world. The world wants to push us into its mould, folks. It wants to push us through that mold and wants to make us exactly who, you know, like everyone else around about us, you know, just practice the same kind of behaviours, the same kind of, you know, moral, uh, you know, um, understandings and that sort of thing. God says, do not be like the world. Do not allow it to press you into its mold. And that is a challenge for every single one of us, whether we're young or old in this place today. But instead, Paul says that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, understanding that we are indeed people who are citizens of heaven, that we are sons and daughters of God. We are children of God, adopted by him, called by him, redeemed by him, treasured by him, loved by him, and therefore we need to live for him. Amen? Amen. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that we may discern the will of God for our lives and that we might know what is good, acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and as we've sort of seen the uh, you know, a passage which on the surface appeared as though really may not have too much to say to us this morning, in fact has an incredible amount to say to us in terms of how we live our lives for you. 
that as the people of God we are called indeed to be holy. As your word says, we are to be holy because you are holy. We are to be like our Father. And Lord, that is the work that you are carrying out in each and every one of our lives who have put our faith and trust in Jesus. That aspect of of wanting to transform us and to make us more holy in our lives, more like the Lord Jesus Christ, because that is what is best for us. That is what brings you honour and glory. Lord, as you work in our lives, as, 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 as we start to see the fruit of that, as we start to see glimpses of that in our lives, we get excited because we can see your hand at work in us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, that urges us on, that, that encourages us in our hearts. But also, it, it also is a means of you pointing to the fact that you are indeed a real God, the God who transforms people. And Father, if there be people here in this congregation this morning who desperately need that transformation, that life, that work of transformation in their lives, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you might just lead them to Jesus Christ, that you might bring them to the foot of the cross this morning, help them to surrender to you, Lord, and help them to, to move forward in, a, in the new life that you have for them in Jesus. For those who, uh, who have been walking that path for some time and yet have maybe, you know, perhaps slipped back a bit and have got into that, uh, you know, those uh, practices of, of worldly living and that sort of thing, I pray this morning that this might be a, a wake-up call to them, that these people might understand that you are a God who has called them, that they are precious to you, that you have a purpose for their lives, that you are indeed the God who, who loves them deeply and who wants what's best for them. And that, Lord, today that they might renounce that world, their worldly ways from this point on and seek to walk with you again, to walk in that newness of life in Jesus. We pray, Father, that you might do this work in our lives. May we continue to be people who, who are distinct for you, people who are indeed to stand out for you in a good way, Lord, in a, in a, in a way of wholesomeness and, and brings blessing to those around about us. Help us to be those people, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.